Well, this is lovely. Yes, Sunday evening together, talking about things. Thanks for coming out. Um, it'd be a much worse experience for me if I was just talking to the chairs. Uh, we're going to have a two-half evening as per normal, but in the second half, Linda, I'm going to ask Linda some questions around our theme and topic tonight. So she's going to share some of her experience and perspective and wisdom on what it is that we're discussing. Uh, we have been, uh, as Clint mentioned, uh, in this series that we've called uh, Beyond Tribalism. And really what we're attempting to do is to talk about how uh, we belong in the 21st century in ways that do not uh, set us against one another. So if we look at uh, the human experience, often a strong sense of belonging is, can be created through um, contrasting yourselves with the people who are outside of your group of belonging. And so I belong to this group and those people out there are my enemy. There's like, you know, one version of that, I suppose. Uh, and um, at times, as we've talked about, um, religious belonging can give rise to conflict. Shocking news of the year. Um, it's not the only thing that gives rise to conflict, but it is true that um, because religious communities and Christian communities have been a part of this in various ways in their history, uh, belong together around very, for very specific reasons. Uh, and sometimes those can be used to cultivate a real animosity and even violence sometimes against those who are not a part of us. And so whether we want to talk about um, the Crusades are obviously a, a, just a, a, a great example <laughs> of that. I use the word great in a particular way there. Um, and so we've been working our way through a, a few conversations. That we, we did start off by looking at that whole emergence of the idea of a Christian empire and what that did to the Christian message, which starts out as this very subversive and countercultural and grassroots movement where of inclusion, where, where people from all sorts of different social classes were included within these communities. But uh, after a certain period of time, Christianity um, converts into, if you like, uh, an empire system with its own military and, um, and the way in which that also reshaped conversations around what it means to, uh, to believe the right things, to be a heretic or not, uh, what it means to um, see those who are not within your religious community and how you respond to them and, and treat them. And so Christians went from being the oppressed on the margins group to being uh, the oppressors um, in quite a short space of time, actually, when it actually when it took place. So uh, we had a bit of a conversation about that and what that means for us now. Uh, a little while ago, we talked then about um, discussed psychology and the way in which that can trigger in us um, instinctive and subconscious reactions towards people who are not like us, who we don't think, uh, for whatever reason, belong within the community. Um, and so very similar to the way that we spit out something that we find disgusting, we can uh, do the same in communities and uh, social communities, form social boundaries that, where, we, where we see people as in or out in the same kinds of way. Uh, and then last time, we talked about 
Uh, some of the things that emerge in the New Testament when the church is formed and the way in which they are, um, we talked about, for example, this unnecessary miracle of the day of Pentecost, where even though all of these people from these different parts of the world could actually most likely speak a common language, somehow they all hear in the language from the land that they're from as the symbol that whatever is happening in this Jesus story and with these Jesus followers is supposed to be something that reaches beyond some of the normal boundaries that separate from us from one another and actually affirm people from all sorts of different spaces and cultural experiences and, and ethnicities and so on. So that's where we're up to, yeah? That's my recap. <clears throat> and uh, tonight we're going to talk about something spicy. Uh, so we're talking about Christian faith and religious pluralism, and I, and I think one of the one of the reasons why I think this is an important conversation to for us to be having is is maybe because a lot of the conflict that I was talking about earlier has often taken place between people with different religious beliefs and from different religious traditions, and in a globalized, highly mobile world that we now live in we find ourselves, instead of staying within these quite monocultural, mono-religious groups around the world where all of the Christians hang out um, there on my left uh, with the Church of England uh, or the Roman Catholic Church or whatever it might be, or uh, historically speaking, and then all the Muslims hang out over there in the Middle East and all the Hindus and Buddhists hang out over there in Southeast Asia and then we all sort of stay as miles apart from one another and then occasionally when we interact, it doesn't go well. Um, but what we're living in now is a world where those people are, you know, where we're all neighbours literally of one another in the same neighbourhood, not just, you know, symbolically neighbours. <laughs> we're literally neighbours. Uh, and so we live in a city with mosques and Hindu temples and Buddhist gatherings and Christian gatherings. And how do we navigate that? kind of world? How do people belong to their faith tradition um, in that kind of world? And what does it mean to belong to your faith tradition in that kind of world? And are we able to do that in ways that um, lead to human flourishing and health rather than toward more conflict? And, you know, I think it's good for Christians to be a part of that conversation. I mean, Christians have at times, it's, it's not just between religions, sometimes it's within a religion, Christianity again is not unique to this. It's part of the human experience, I think. Um, but you think about Ireland and its long history of violence between Catholics and Protestants and the tension that sits there. And, you know, I think when I was younger, I just used to be, oh, well, none of them are not real Christians. That's why they're having that problem. Um, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, it sounds good. To, well, it sounded good to me because it absolved me of any kind of having to feel responsible for actions that I wasn't comfortable with. And yet at the same time, it's a, it, we belong to a tradition that is quite broad and wide. Uh, and sometimes you have to be honest about the ways in which your own communities and traditions have behaved and lived in the world. Cool? So that's what we're talking about. And the way we're going to do this is I'm going to take us through a few different stories in the Bible. So, yeah, the Bible, Andrew. Yeah. Fancy, I know. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a number of different interreligious encounters in the biblical text. 
and what we'll see maybe is that they are diverse and some of them uh, people seem to, uh, there we could call them positive interreligious encounters perhaps, um, depending on your perspective, and some of them end up a little more testy. Uh, and really what I want to do is just, is just open up a space for us to be able to look at these stories and reflect on them and think about what's going on in these encounters between these people. Um, what do we think about that? Not really to necessarily say, and therefore our conclusion is that uh, we now know the correct way to engage with all people everywhere and we shall now leave this place this evening uh, fully mastered. Um, but really just as a way of opening up a conversation. And then what I'm going to do in the second half is I'm going to ask Linda a few questions around this whole idea. You cool with that? Is everybody all right? Okay out there? Oh, great. All right. So we'll start in Genesis. It's right near the start of the Bible. Um, other than the table of contents, which I always think of as the first book. But um, we're going to start in Genesis 14. And there is um, this odd little story in the story of Abraham. Now, if you know the Old Testament at all in the book of Genesis, and some of you may, some of you may not, uh, the story of Genesis, the first uh, 11 chapters or so, are really the story of kind of uh, this beautiful imagining of what the human experience might be like, that it might be beautiful and God is beautiful and everything is beautiful and we're created to be wonderful. Uh, but then we have these amazing ways of spiralling out of control. Uh, and when we get to um, 11th, 12th chapter of Genesis, we run into this character, Abraham, who gets renamed Abraham. And he becomes the first of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. There is no nation of Israel at this point, but he becomes the, uh, the one whom he, uh, the way the story is told is that he, has, he is called out from this place by God uh, and he is told, look at all the stars in the sky, you'll be the father of many nations and in the future people will sing songs about you where they put their right legs and left legs into the middle of a circle and spin around. And... Um, and then, that's, man, that's like an old Sunday school joke, eh? If you don't, I'm really sorry if that went over your head. Um, and, and so Abraham, uh, who becomes Abraham, uh, becomes this pivotal figure in the emerging story of what will become uh, the nation of Israel, which will be the Hebrew people, and then as what we now know as the Jewish faith. Uh, and Abraham becomes having gone through a bit of a journey, becomes a very wealthy and powerful man. And there's a bit of a, a kerfuffle between some different groups of people at one particular point in the story. We're in Genesis 14 now. And some, uh, some people were uprising against some other people and kings of here and kings of there and kings of some other places were all leading some armies in battle. Uh, and Abraham sort of comes in, uh, swooping in as a bit of a... Uh, a retaliator and, a, and to um, pursue some of the people that had come and taken some stuff that they shouldn't have taken, etc., etc. Details are not so important at this point in the story, except to say that uh, the kings for whom Abraham ended up um, allying with, that's the right way to say that, uh, then they sort of all get together after the battle and have a bit of a, a, a chat. Yeah? And that's where this is. And the king of Salem... Um, is named Melchizedek. And uh, 
He brings out some bread and wine. That sounds familiar, actually. And um, he was a priest of God Most High. El, El Enyon. Enyon? I think that's how you say it in the Hebrew, but I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so if I'm incorrect, if you're Googling as I speak, I'm sorry. Podcast is much more likely to be Googling as I speak. Oh man, they catch you out, those guys. Uh, so Melchizedek is the king of Salem and he's called the priest of the God Most High and he, and he blesses Abraham. And he says, Blessed be Abraham of, go, of God Most, Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Uh, and then um, Abraham... Um, is that the next part of the... Oh no, that's another text. Um, ends up giving a tenth of all he has to Melchizedek as well, the king of Salem. So there's a bit of a barter about the people. What should they do with the people that Abraham took when he won the battle? Which is an indication we're working in ancient times here where people, including women and children, were sort of the bounty of war. So even though Abraham is our father in the faith, let's not fluff him up too much here. But he's participating in an ancient world where that was the way in which things were done, sadly. Um, but we have this curious figure of Melchizedek who is a priest and a king. Uh, usually in a, in a nation in the ancient Near East, you have a king and then you also have uh, the cult of the religion itself. So in Israel, that becomes later on the Levites, for example, are the priests who facilitate the worship practices and prayer life and sacrificial life of the community. And then there's the king who leads the nation. In this particular case in Salem, you have Melchizedek, who's a king and is also the priest for that particular group of people. Yeah? You all with me? No, no, not at all. Um, and that is correct. No separation between church and state. Um, the inter- one of the interesting things about this story, I think, is that we are in a time in the story when, and, and research tells us this about the ancient Near East, that the word L, which is often uh, in English ends up being E-L, uh, which often becomes, you might, if you read your Old Testament, you might notice words like El Shaddai or Elohim, words like that, which are different names for God. Well, before Israel ever emerged, the name El was used for uh, talking about the God Most High, who was considered to be the chief God amongst whom all other gods sort of reported, if you like. Does that make sense? Um, At no point at this story yet do we have the name Yahweh for God. That comes in the Moses story much later. Um, so this God that calls Abraham out in many respects is this God most high, whom he yet doesn't has, have a lot of information about. And so he's following this God most high. And when he meets the king of Salem, who is a priest of the God most high, they get along quite well. Uh, both seeming to relate to the God most high, which I find is an interesting encounter. Now, later on in the Exodus story, when Moses in the burning bush, Uh, God says, this is my name, which until now you have not known, but now I'm telling you my name is Yahweh. So that then becomes the name for the nation of Israel for their God. And what Israel does is says, well, this Yahweh who's revealed in the burning bush is the God most high. 
You with me? Yeah? Okay. Given that there's no king. Well, this is an interesting... I'm glad you brought that up. Let us... Uh, who, was ordained, who, who ordained Melchizedek as the priest? This is something that captures the imagination of the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, who is talking about Jesus, who is understood by the, um, this particular, the, the author of Hebrews, as being like a king and a priest. And so he sees, or she, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, they see um, the similarities between Jesus and this ancient figure of Melchizedek who pops up in the story and then disappears again. Just in this random little moment, Abraham and him have this conversation about the gold most high and blessings are exchanged and tithes are exchanged. The tithe is paid to Melchizedek. Um, so this offering is made in that direction from Abraham. Um, and so the writer of Hebrews is quite fascinated by this and so says, you know, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters Within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews gets pretty, um, uh, loves their imagery and utilising a lot of the Old Testament images. So if you're not familiar with some of the language, then just, it's okay. Um, the veil is the part that was between the outer part of the temple and then the inner holy of holies where God's presence was said to dwell. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus entering through into that space for us in some kind of way. So acting like a priest is what the author is saying here. Um, but a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, just a casual trip, uh, and blessed him to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Very curious little passage. And now, now what the writer of Hebrews here is, is, is doing, is saying this character, um, Melchizedek, this is one take on what the writer of Hebrews is doing. I'm sure you could Google another one. But uh, the Melchizedek pops up in the story. There's nothing to say where he's come from and there's nothing to say where is he going. Um, but in some way, there's something unique about this priestly and kingly role that he has. And the writer of Hebrews says, this is very similar to like Jesus who ar arrives to us mysteriously um, and then ascends from us mysteriously uh, and as a priest and as a king. And so actually says Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek who is a character from outside of the religious story of Israel, yeah? Uh, and so some talk about Mel Melchizedek as like a priest of the cosmic religion in that sense, of like this bigger kind of more expansive way of thinking about who God is and, and so on. So that's like, this. I find this story is a little like mind explosion, um, especially compared to the quite narrow exclusive terms in which I probably have traditionally understood the way I thought about what's going on in the Bible even. I'm like, well, okay, some theologians might play with this stuff, but the Bible's pretty clear. And then you read it and you're like, no, oh, no, it's interesting. Um, so um, let's run through a couple of others and then we'll just see what your reflections are on, on the back of these different stories. Is that all right? Yeah? Okay. This one, this one uh, is a little more negative. 
so in the ancient Near East, there is another god called Baal. And Baal is the storm god. And Baal is very popular in the ancient Near East. And there's, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see there's a lot of argy-bargy between the followers of Yahweh and the followers of Baal as to whom we should be serving. Should we be serving Yahweh or Baal? And, um, and so things get pretty heated sometimes. And at times it seems Israel just descends entirely into Baal worship um, and ignores Yahweh completely, maybe for generations and generations until they return back to Yahweh in some kind of way. Uh, there's also another god who pops up, a goddess, actually, Asherah. So sometimes you'll to, um, the Asherah poles, you'll hear, uh, you read in the Old Testament about um, someone would rise up and sort of tear down all of the Asherah poles. Or sometimes, and often, they would destroy all the Baal stuff, but they would leave some of the Asherah poles. And they have found inscriptions from caves and other writings in the ancient Near East to say that many of the people in Israel at times believed Yahweh and Asherah to be married, which is... Um, Heretical? Yeah, probably. Uh, but interesting in, in the sense that what we don't have is this really linear kind of everybody always believed in the thing that we always believe in and that's exactly how it's gone forever. You know, there is, is a complicated, complex, changing story. Uh, so is that all right? Is that all right so far? Okay, yeah. So um, Elijah uh, is a prophet in the nation of Israel and at this particular point in time, Ahab and Jezebel, king and queen, um, uh, arch nemesis of Elijah and of Yahweh, uh, who love themselves a bit of Baal worship. Um, and uh, Elijah eventually challenges them to a showdown on top of a mountain, which is something uh, my mum did to the Jehovah's Witnesses when they came to the door. She said, let us have a showdown like the prophets of Baal and Elijah and we shall call down on heaven and see who is correct. And I, that, was what my, that was a story my mum told when I came home from school. No, I didn't. Um, they left at that point, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and my mum likes to think it was because they were, you know, scared obviously to engage in the, well, she did at the time, you know, that they were, they knew they'd lose. <laughs> but I wonder if they were just like, this is a bit intense. Um, <laughs> maybe not, maybe. Uh, anyway, so Elijah and the prophets of Baal, there's 400 of them, there's one of him. And he says, basically, we're going to call down and, 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 and if Baal is, is God, then um, Baal will come and consume your sacrifices that you're making. And if, and if Yahweh is God, then God, Yahweh will come and consume the sacrifice that I prepare. The prophets of Baal kill all of these animals and they go around and around and around and around the altar where they've sacrificed these animals. Always a bloody business, these sacrifices. Um, and uh, they start cutting themselves as a sign of devotion to Baal. Uh, you know, um, so, that, so there's blood on the altar that they've built there's animals and death, and now they're cutting themselves, so there's just blood everywhere. Um, and Elijah builds an altar with no animals on it, pours a bunch of water on it just to rub it in, uh, mocks them a little bit for their God maybe being asleep and, uh, or otherwise engaged, 
and then prays this simple prayer and fire comes down and consumes the altar and evaporates the water and then Elijah's like, see, my God's the real one. I didn't even have to kill anything or cut myself. And then he goes and they kill all the prophets. <laughs> yeah. Which I feel like is, when I, <laughs> is a negative turn. And that's not the only response he could have made at that time, but it is the response he felt was appropriate in his context. Um, actually, he gathered all the people up and they all chased the prophets down and, and killed them all. So more blood. All right. Also, some interreligious violence. That's what we could say. Uh, cool? Yeah? Okay. Another story. Uh, the Magi. Christmas. We're coming up to Christmas, aren't we, already? It's almost time for Mariah Carey. Hey, Merry Christmas. First album, not first Christmas album, not the second. <laughs> These are important points. Uh, anyway, um, the Magi, the wise men, a key part of the of the Christmas tale, but kind of an odd story, because what you have is three astrologers, astro- astrologers, uh, who like to read star signs in the sky from a foreign land, who. Um, use their astrology to track down the birth of Jesus. And so you have, again, this intersection and they come and they present gifts uh, and baby Jesus then says, follow me in this prayer. Please, please pray after me. Uh, I'm very sorry for being a wise man and for following the stars and I shall now follow you forever. Uh, <laughs> it's not the way the story goes, right? But what happens is they give the gifts and then they, and then they go. Um, this kind of beautiful story. But again, I think even from the very beginning of the Jesus birth story, there's this reaching beyond, there's this idea that something bigger is actually, you know, going on here. Let's not, let's not get stuck too small in our understanding of what it is that God is like and where God might be present. Yeah? A little bit of mystery to it. Magic, we might even say in, in the Magi, because mag, Magi were magicians. Um, so... It's not supposed to work, but it did. Uh, what else have we got? We've got the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that story? Some of you will. So uh, Jesus tells a parable uh, because this uh, gentleman who's trying to be a very good religious man says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, love God and love your neighbour as yourself. Well, they have, that's kind of what comes out of their interaction. And then the man says, well, who's my neighbour though? So if you could answer that, that'd be good because then I can um, demonstrate that I'm doing that already. Because it says he wanted, wanting to justify himself, he asks Jesus, who is my neighbour? And so Jesus tells this tale about a man who gets beaten up and left on the side of the road and two Jewish religious people walk by, a Levite and a priest. I think that's the characters, isn't it? Yeah, let's say that's correct. Theologian, of course it's correct. Uh, And they come up to where the man is beaten and lying on the side of the road and they walk by. In fact, they cross the road to sort of get away from all of that dirtiness. Disgust reflex, maybe. And uh, then you're kind of waiting for, so who's the character that's going to, who's the person who's going to help then? And the person who helps is a Samaritan who is both an ethnic other, cultural other, 
and religious other from a Jewish perspective. And they become the hero of the story. Um, and so the point of the story of the Good Samaritan is not just help people who are on the side of the road, although that's one part of the point of the story, but everybody kind of knew that that's what you were supposed to do in Jesus' time. They knew you, so the first two guys are doing what, you know, they shouldn't. Everyone knew that they should be stopping to help, but they weren't. So the point of the story isn't really stop and help people who are on the side of the road who have been beaten up, although that's obviously a good thing to do. But the point of the story is it's the Samaritan who becomes the hero, and that's quite controversial. And, uh, and so when Jesus says, who was a neighbour to the man on the side of the road? So he flips it around and actually says, so who's the neighbour? Um, and the guy says, the one who, uh, the one who helped. Uh, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan because what Jesus is highlighting is, yeah, you thought you were being good to your neighbour because you thought you were probably the kind of guy who would help the man on the side of the road. But I want to bring to the surface some other hostilities that you have inside yourself that you, you've justified and think are fine, but that in fact are not. And so the religious other in this story becomes the hero of the story who we are supposed to now be like. So that's a little messy too. It's good, isn't it? Uh, okay, another story. And then I'll give you a chance to talk soon, I promise. Um, oh, it's a long bit of text. Paul, who now we've zoomed through uh, the Jesus story and now we're on the other side of it. So we're post Jesus. Although, are we ever really post Jesus? Um, you know what I mean. We are, so Jesus has you know, done his thing and we've got the church forming now. And Paul is going around and taking this message to people who are outside of the Jewish faith in particular. And he says, uh, well, the writer of Acts Says, so Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, men of Athens. So this is this place where they would come and they would talk about important things. Men talking about important things. Oh, yes. Ra rah. <clears throat> Sorry. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, they would seek God. If perhaps, it's a very long sentence. It's a bit wordy, eh, Paul? You get this in his letters as well. A bit chatty. Um, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, oh, I said that bit already, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, or have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Um, this encounter on Mars Hill between Paul and these philosophers, and he takes a statue of an unknown God and says, well, let me tell you about God. Uh, and in some sense, God is not limited to all of the, to, doesn't live in your temples and in your statues and so on. There's this bigger, more expansive thing going on here. But then he does this weird thing. He uses two quotes. Uh, for in him we live and move and have our being, and for we also are his children. Now, for we also are his children is a poem about Zeus. So he's 
um, drawing some connections. Now, he's not, I don't think, saying, so let's all go and follow Zeus. But he does draw on the poetry that relates to their understanding of God to talk about his understanding of God. And uh, In Him We Live and Move and Have Our Being is also a poem about, it's either it's from a statement, I think, about Zeus, but it might be about one of the other Greek or Roman gods. So he draws on these things that are present in these other religious traditions and says, let me, let's have a common conversation about this. Yeah? But then he does go on to talk a bit about Jesus because for Paul, Jesus is what his story centres around. So for him, it all comes crashing into the story of Jesus and it says, well, Jesus makes the difference for Paul. So, um, so then he um, basically again goes to this thing that the divine nature can't be captured within things that we make with our hands. Uh, and so now God is saying, hey, we've all got to change if we put that word, uh, if we translate that word repent as essentially change. Um, because ultimately um, God is doing something in Jesus and, and, and so God is going to use that to, um, to judge the world about what is good and not good and right and unhealthy and loving and violent and so on. So there's this interplay for Paul and this is quite a complicated interreligious encounter where he's drawing on their traditions but also pointing toward Jesus who for Paul is central and most important in the conversation and saying actually everything centres around how we, how we um, react and respond and relate to the kind of God that we see presented to us in Jesus Christ. Yeah? You all okay? I'm whipping through them, but I'm just giving you a smattering. Not all of them, but just a selection. Uh, there's another one in Acts. Um, this is almost the last one. This one here uh, in Ephesus, um, the, there's a whole economy that goes with Artemis of the Ephesians. So Artemis is a goddess, very powerful goddess, um, uh, supplies, uh, what should we say, uh, life to many of the other gods. And so many of the statues of Artemis involve many breasts as of this giving of life to all of the different gods uh, that would draw life from Artemis. So there was this whole... Uh, cult of Artemis in Ephesus, but there was also an economy that went with that, which is you make all these little statues of Artemis and then you sell them to the people and if someone buys the little statue, then they can get some of the goodness from Artemis, the goddess. Uh, and what happens is Paul starts talking about God and these big expansive ideas and not limited to golden, like we just saw at Mars Hill, not limited to these things and sale of the statues dries up and disrupts the economy. <laughs> And so an uproar is created and everybody fires up and starts. Well, the people who start the uproar are the sellers of the statues who are, who are losing financial gain from what is happening in this particular thing. And so there's an uproar that's created and they all start. They chant, I think, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. They just start chanting, I think, for two or three hours. I think that's how it goes. Just great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, so they got quite worked up. Uh, and in the end, they decide to chill out a little bit and settle down. Uh, because what they say is, actually, Paul hasn't done anything to upset anybody. It's just that people have been listening to what he's saying and stopped buying his statues. So, calm down. 
that's the kind of decision in the end the city council has to make about what's going on in this. They look at what Paul's doing and is he in fact going around telling everybody to tear down all of the statues of Artemis and do all of these things and they say, well, no, he hasn't actually done that. It's just that people have been listening to what he's saying, finding it compelling and stopping spending all their money on these statues and that's their, their choice. Essentially, that's what happens uh, at the conclusion of that story. One more? Not really a story, just a text. Hebrews 13, verse 2. Again, Hebrews, weird book. But um, I mean that affectionately. I don't mean that in an upsetting way, so don't be upset by that. But it is, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. That's an odd story or text. Um, but the ultimate stranger, really, to in, in the ancient world is, especially in this um, church that is now spread culturally and ethnically, is probably the religious other. Um, at least that's one kind of stranger that we encounter in our lives. And so the suggestion that sometimes what we might encounter when we encounter the stranger is that maybe there's something of God happening there even if we don't see it. So actually maybe... Uh, be kind to those who are different from you because you may find that God is up to something there, not just here. I would expect this text to go, be, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this uh, you will be like an angel to those who you, you know, look after uh, because they'll find something of God in you. But actually it kind of says around the other way, which is that somehow you'll find something um, of God happening in, in them. So, there's a bunch of texts and stories that I've just plucked out from the old Bible there um, that I would love for you to just, uh, for a few minutes maybe, with the people that you're sitting around, go, what do these stories make you think about? What comes to mind? Um, What's your response? How do you feel about them? Some of them show conflict. Uh, some, some of them are much more exclusive and much more separatist and some are less so. Um, how do you feel about them? What's your response to them? What do you think? What comes to the surface? Is that all right? Yeah, okay. Have a chat. So um, I feel like that's a conversation that could take a few years. But let's, let's come back together. Um, now, for this point in the conversation, you're like, well, oh, sorry, I'll wait. I'll wait, wait for us to finish. <laughs> so, so, part of what we're doing here, I think, is, is opening up the conversation. And all sorts of questions, I think, can and probably should come to the surface out of this. Um, Because I find that's what happens for me. Even when I read these stories, I'm like, well, okay, hang on a second. What what does all this mean for for me and for my faith and for what I belong to and for what I believe? Um, And are we just saying, oh, well, everything's the same then. Nothing matters. Um, and let's 
um, just just what ifs. You know, that could be like one conclusion that comes out of it. Uh, but hopefully, there's there's uh, there's something beyond that which we can which we can come to. Um, but again, this is just opening opening up a way of starting to talk about this. Um, and sharing these stories, my hope is to kind of come at you sideways a little bit because in some senses that just jolts us out of the normal rut of the way we might think about some of these things. Come at you sideways, bring some stuff to the top and then go, right, what do we do with that then? Um, are there any thoughts in particular that came out of your discussions that anyone would be happy to share at this point with the wider group? Yes. So generally within um, our group, we were a little bit uncomfortable with the violence in the Old Testament and probably found it hard to to relate to it in this day and age. But um, the, the stuff in Acts around Paul um, finding common ground with the people of Ephesus, maybe, whoever they were. I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Uh, <laughs> the main point is that um, he found common ground with them before he started talking about Jesus. And um, yeah, I really appreciated that, I guess, personally. Yeah. Awesome, thanks. Yeah, D. I think I always find that story of Melchizedek really fascinating, that the father of Jewish culture, a.k.a. Abraham, is having an interaction with Melchizedek, who's not obviously Jew, but is uh, a priest of the Most High, and that these two ancient patriarchal characters are having this interaction about this ancient God that Abraham hasn't really come to discover in any sort of fullness and it just, I don't know, I just think that's like really fascinating to me and really interesting that God has been at work in other cultures outside of Judaism um, and Christianity for that matter uh, well before we started to get, when I, when I say we, I mean Jew, Jewish belief system started or even began. <laughs> I just think that's really interesting. Cool, man. Thanks. Yeah. I, I think something that stood out for me was um, if we are um, tribal and exclusive and focus on what it takes to line up with what we've always been taught, we actually might miss the real point of this. So to summarize, it's, it's probably easier to get all the answers right at Sunday school and to memorize all the Bible verses you're required to than to really change, to really become someone who's kind, um, forgiving, um, you know, charitable. Um, but those things are actually way harder than just um, memorizing some religious system and complying with it. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Cool. Anyone else? Clint? Uh, just to follow on from uh, Randall, I think in our discussion we were talking that some truths are universal um, and transcend specific religious um, or faith traditions. So um, in those stories I think that's something we picked out in the conversation. So, yeah. Cool. Anyone else? 
We good? Really nice reflections. Thank you. Um, I do think that this conversation has the ability to push some buttons maybe that even even others might not because it gets to the heart of, okay, why am I part of this thing? Uh, and I, and I um, still hold to the fact that we can have very important and profound reasons why we might be Christian and also live with an open and inclusive way of being in the world. In fact, I think that's a big part of what being a Christian is supposed to be. Um, in fact, one of the big things that defined the early church's difference was their inclusion. And I find that an interesting thing to reflect on. What set them apart, what made them different from a lot of the people around them was the way in which they actually drew people in and included them and, and embraced them. And in that sense, that's the beautiful kind of coming together, you know? Um, there is an identity there. There is stuff that makes us distinct. But a part of what makes the Christian distinct in the, in the New Testament is the way in which they would say, oh, the, 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 the supper, the, the, the table is open. Um, and that's a, a beautiful idea, I find. And it was revolutionary in its time because that's not the way in which society worked and it's still not really the way in which society works. We have all sorts of ways of organising ourselves um, and yet the Christian story asks us to open ourselves up to a different way of seeing one another. Cool? All right. Can I say a prayer? Yeah, exactly. Who am I going to pray to? I don't know. The Most High. <laughs> God, we thank you that you are present with us and in us and through us and beyond. That you are bigger than all of the ideas we hold about you. Um, and that you are safe. May we continue to learn what it is to lean in to the kind of people you um, might desire us to be, the way we might see one another and treat one another and behave toward one another, the compassion and the kindness that we might embody to others and also to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.